go ahead and open our Bibles to Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Robin read Jeremiah 1 through 18 to you this morning. It's a reminder of what had happened with the nation of Israel over time. That now, in the time of Daniel, the whole of the nation, the southern and northern kingdoms, had been crushed and dispersed. And now Babylon inhabited the land and had exiled or taken many Jews with them back to the capital of Babylon. It's also a reminder of what got them there. The continual downgrade in just the basics of Christianity. Love the Lord your God, the one living true God, with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The first four commandments had been completely annihilated by a majority of the people of Israel. And now we see the remnant with Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This small remnant... There were a few more, I'm sure. But here, Daniel gives us a sense of how small the remnant is. And here we see these three friends standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the known earth at the time. And he's saying... Bow down to this statue. And they say, no. They say, we trust our God so much that even if He does not save us from the fire, we believe wholeheartedly in His purpose and His glory and his kingdom, and we will never bow to another. See? When they say no, chapter 3, verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. The Nebuchadnezzar, the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for the work of your Spirit as we have heard your word read. We have sung the truths of your word and prayed accordingly. And now we come to a time of the preaching of your word and ask your mercies and graces upon it. Use the preacher for your glory alone. May you be glorified. We ask that your spirit would not only work in and through the preacher according to these things, but those in the hearing of this preaching would have the truth illumined to their souls by your spirit according to that truth which is in your word and your word alone. We give you praise for this time. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, this morning I want to continue with our line of thinking as we've come out of the end of chapter 2. We've seen Israel's plight. We've seen now the, the Lord working in the remnant of these few. 
And at the end of chapter 2, we talked about Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel. The first portion of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar honored himself with this statue. The second portion of chapter 3, we began last week, Nebuchadnezzar honored snitches. These snitches, as I called them. There were plenty of words I said you could have used. Tattletales, sleazemongers, muckrakers, all those kinds of things. But these Chaldeans, they snitched against Daniel's friends. They told on them because of their jealousy, their covetousness. And now we're going to see what ends up happening after they've snitched. We're going to see what happened after the narcissistic king caved to his own pride and the regenerate friends worshipped the one God. These friends just simply looked at Nebuchadnezzar and said, no, we will not bow. We will not. And the scripture says Nebuchadnezzar's countenance changed towards the three and he commanded they be cast into the fire. And casting them into the fire... He had his desire, he had his plan, he was working out what he thought was the ultimate plan in his will. And we will see, fourthly, under that heading of Nebuchadnezzar honored snitches, we'll see this morning, the true king rescues his people. The true king rescues his people. We need to note several things as we consider this. Firstly, the friends were carried up to this blazing inferno. It's not just any fire, but it's a fire heated seven times over. It's a fire so hot that they were going to be bound up so that they could not escape it and thrown in. But what Nebuchadnezzar meant as his revelation to all of those around and in its seeing, of his greatness, God meant for his own revelation. The friends were carried up to the blazing inferno, and the furnace becomes a tool of revelation. Notice that it's very obvious here that these men are thrown into this fire. The fire did not consume the friends. So who was thwarted? Nebuchadnezzar was. Nebuchadnezzar had his purpose right. I'm going to burn these guys up. It's done and over. I'm going to tie them up. They can't get loose. I'm going to throw them in this fire and they won't even hardly hit the bottom of this thing and they'll already be dead. But the fire did not consume the friends. So the king... Nebuchadnezzar was thwarted. The fire did not consume the friends, so natural order was interrupted. Now think about that for a minute. They were tied up. They were thrown into this fire, and yet the fire had no effect on them. The fire had no effect on their bodies, their hair, their clothing, They didn't even smell of fire. 
It shows us that our God, who is the one who created all things, even the very order of nature, at any time, according to His will, He can interrupt that natural order and work as He pleases. But also think how natural order is kept in place. For the material used to bind the friends, it was burned away. Even the men who were to carry them up, the fire was so hot, it consumed them. That's why in one place it talks about the men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being cast into the fire. And in another place it talks about them falling in. These men were consumed in such a force and way that they were unable to fully do their job by casting them into the fire. These men were just consumed. So God allowed natural order to work as it does in certain case or certain sense in this particular situation. And yet in another way, he interrupted natural order. Well, this is what we would call a miracle. He interrupted this natural order. So what did God do here? God revealed his power over kings and creation. God revealed his power over kings and creation. Think about this for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar is no small figure. And if you go read of the past, you know, the information historians have gathered about these nations, Nebuchadnezzar is no small figure. Babylon as a kingdom is no small nation. This king had a will and a purpose and he made a decree. You will bow down to this statue. And if you don't, I will put you into this fire. Now as any good king normally does, he didn't actually do any of the work himself. He had some other people actually try to put him into the fire, right? But his plan was completely thwarted. The only ones that were killed were his men, not God's. God revealed his power over kings and creation. He interrupted the created order to bring about his work in a specific way. While in other ways the natural order was kept in place. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. But not only was this furnace a tool of revelation that revealed his power over kings and creation... God revealed his power to save through different means. God revealed his power to save through different means. Three men fell into the fire. They fell in, but were not consumed. They fell in, but were not hurt. They fell in, but showed no effects of the fire. Not even the smell of smoke. One Baptist pastor wrote, He had not descended on the statue, speaking of God, He had not descended on that golden statue, nor shown Himself to all those worshipers gathered around, 
But he visited those three and turned that furnace into a pleasant morning stroll. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, when you read the text as it's explained. Nebuchadnezzar says, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. What would have been an awful, painful, grotesque death, as this Baptist pastor Jeffrey Thomas put it, was a morning stroll. It's only the God of creation who reveals himself and saves through various means that can do this. Not only three men fell into the fire, but four men were seen loose and moving in the fire. Four men were seen loose and moving in the fire. Well, who is the fourth man? Well, the only description we have comes from Nebuchadnezzar himself in the text. He called the appearance, quote, like a son of the gods. He called the appearance later in a few verses down his angel. He sent his angel, God's angel. One writer says the fourth man in the furnace has been variously identified as an unidentified angel or Gabriel or the pre-incarnate Christ or even God himself. He goes on and says the description son of the gods usually describes divine beings, not mortal, but divine beings other than Yahweh. This gives us an identification that there's been quite a bit of debate over the years of who the fourth man is. Now, of course, if you go to liberal scholars, they're always going to have some way to get out of it, and it wasn't anything miraculous and blah, 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 blah. But we're not worried about what they say because they're not believers. Okay? That's, that's not the concern this morning. But even among conservatives, solid, good conservative pastors and theologians, over an 1,800-year period, there's been a debate. For instance, John Calvin wrote that Nebuchadnezzar witnessed an angel sent to aid and comfort these believing men. He referred to the idea of the sons of God as a reference used to denote angels as servants. And you see that various places in Scripture. The Geneva Bible of 1560. Now why would that be important? That's important because in 1560 this is a... a kind of a, an early Reformation Bible that's kind of a conglomerate Reformation Bible. There had been some Bibles translated into English by this time which were translated by individuals and we're very thankful for those, okay? Um, I'm not demeaning that at all. But the Geneva Bible has a little more of some consensus thought and it even is influenced by Calvin himself. But it's interesting to note that in this Geneva Bible, in its notes, there's a different view from Calvin's. The Geneva Bible of 1560 says, For the angels were called the sons of God because of their excellency, 
Therefore, the king called this angel, speaking of the angel in Daniel chapter 3 here, whom God sent to comfort his, speaking of his people, in these great torments. And he called this angel the Son of God. So you can see how even in the early Reformation period, there's a context in which you have this sense of, we know something miraculous happened. It's very true and real. Some men would have said it's an angel, and Calvin was standing on the shoulders of a lot of even the early church fathers. I read several of the early church fathers myself and then read other materials that quoted quite a few of them. And many of them said, this is the Son of God here that's referenced in the furnace. And yet even when we get to the Reformation, Calvin himself and the Geneva Bible of 1560 both take a different view. John Gill, a late 1700s pastor, thought it was probable that this was Christ coming to comfort and rescue his people. Spurgeon really doesn't mince words as he normally doesn't. He says, there was a fourth, and he was so bright and glorious that even the heathen eyes of Nebuchadnezzar could discern a supernatural luster about him. The fourth, he said, is like the Son of God. And then Spurgeon, after quoting Nebuchadnezzar, says, what appearance Christ had had put on, I cannot tell. So he makes it pretty plain who he thinks it is. He says, what appearance Christ had put on, I cannot tell, which was recognizable by that heathen monarch. But I suppose that he appeared in a degree of that glory in which he showed himself to his servant John in the apocalypse. Well, a little bit later, there's a Presbyterian minister who says any angel would impress the king as belonging to this class. And certainly, the mighty angels of God were capable of delivering from even a peril as great as this. The mighty Son of God indeed delivered his own also in Old Testament times. But his agents or ministers to execute his purpose were the angels, and he quoted Psalm 91.11, He will give his angels charge over thee to keep you in all thy ways. You all know me and most of the time I'm pretty definitive on everything I choose to say. I have to admit there are times I read this text and I've been looking at this for years. I want to plainly declare to you a miracle happened if it was God's angel or if it was Christ himself. There is no doubt about that to me. I think I would say it like D.R. Davis says it. Could this be Christ? I think likely so. But I cannot prove it decisively from this text. I would say to you that God shows us in other places in Scripture... He uses his angels to serve his people. And it's plain that he's done so. 
It is also plain in the Old Testament that there are times where he sins or the very son himself comes and does his work. I think of Jacob. We must make it plain here, though, that whether you think this is an angel of the Lord that did the work or whether it was Christ himself, ultimately, we know only this work could have been willed and decreed by the one true living God, that these three men would be delivered. And they were. There's no doubt about it. I think I'll say to you this morning, just like the old gospel song, it's that fourth man walking, Christ, it is he. It reminds me that the Lord is able at any time to work anything according to his will for his people. And he does save his people. He does save his people. Well, to move forward in this section, we go to our large number four. We've been under number three for four points, and you've followed along well, and I appreciate that. But I want to close out this chapter with Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel's friends. Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar honored himself. Nebuchadnezzar honored snitches. And now Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel's friends. How did he honor them? Well, he calls them out of the fire. That's one way he honored them. Come on out. Get out of that fire. Even though it's not bothering you, but come on out. He's saying a king, now think of this now, the king of Babylon is calling them before him in a different way than they were called before. Earlier in chapter 3, they were called before him under accusation. And now he's calling them out to say, come and stand before me. And he honored them saying they were servants of the Most High God. He even honored them in his decree. He decreed nothing offensive may be spoken against their God. Now, these two are very interesting to me, and I think you need to note something here. There's often a debate about Nebuchadnezzar's frame of mind and whether he might have been converted. And I don't think he is. The reason why is because he continues to refer to this God as their God. He even calls the God Most High, but he refers to it as their God. He never calls this his God. He never bows before this God and says, you are the one true living God. He does admit that this is the only God who could deliver in this way. But he still, and that's in the end of verse 29, but he still will not bow the knee to this God and say, you are the only God. Even in the opening of chapter 4, 
He's coming before this God, declaring how high and great and mighty are his signs and wonders, even his dominion from generation to generation. But he even speaks more thinkingly of himself and thinking of this God in a polytheistic way. He's one of the great gods. One writer says, Do not trust that man who has never been changed, but do not trust that man who changes too often. Nebuchadnezzar has this back and forth that he does, and he continues to do it. I mean, think about it for a minute. Earlier, he had been shown that this God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego was the only one that knew his dream. Right? Daniel was the only one that could tell what the dream was without it being told to him and could interpret the dream and the interpretation of the dream came true or is coming true. And yet, in the hearing of those words and the ending of his own kingdom, he builds a gold statue to himself and now takes these three friends of Daniel's and he's going to put them in a fire. That's not a changed man. And now once they come out of the fire, he doesn't say, this is the one true God. He's even God over me. See, You don't hear Nebuchadnezzar declaring, you're God over me. Stuart Alliot, who is a Baptist pastor, he's retired now, but he's in, in Europe, he says, to use the language of our forefathers, he had both notitia and a census, but not fiducia. Now, he says, he had knowledge. He was given knowledge of God, notitia. He even had some mental assent to be able to say, this is the most high God, but he didn't have faith. He didn't have true, trusting, repentant faith to bow before this God and say, I am a sinner before you. What I have done is wrong. He didn't even admit what he had tried to do to Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego was wrong. He just wanted to praise this Most High God for the signs and wonders, but he didn't want to bow in repentance and say, I've sinned against you and I sinned against your people. See, he didn't have fiducia. He didn't have faith. Another pastor put it this way. He said, mood swings are no evidence of grace. Mood swings are no evidence of grace. Nebuchadnezzar is just a moody king. Back and forth he goes. But he's never bowing in repentance and saying, even you are God over me. See, this is one thing that David had, right? David knew he was a great king, and yet he would bow before God, and he knew God was king over him. 
So Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel's friends. But that doesn't mean Nebuchadnezzar was a changed man. But thirdly, he honored them because he caused the three men to prosper in Babylon. That's how it ends in verse 30. It's strange, isn't it? This is where we started. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, because of what Daniel had done, they had already been uh, promoted, as you would say, to have work in the kingdom of Babylon, and they were already prospering. The Chaldeans were jealous of that, snitched them out because they wouldn't bow to the statue. They go through this whole process, and now what are we back at? The three men are prospering in the land of Babylon, and the Chaldeans are left to their covetousness and jealousy. What I want to leave you with a few observations this morning. Number one, sometimes a simple no is the best answer to the scoffer. Sometimes a simple no is the best answer to the scoffer. You know, I'm very thankful for the apologetic work that many have done over the centuries and even in our modern times. I Think of somebody like R.C. Sproul. Um, some of you may know there's a Reformed Baptist apologist, James White. I don't always agree with him, but I appreciate the apologetic work he's done. Um, th- there are others in that line. C.S. Lewis goes back a little earlier um, and, and so on. And I'm not, I guess to use a modern phrase, I'm not, I don't know how modern it is, throwing shade on these guys, uh, you know, I'm cool. I'm not casting shade on these guys. Um, but there's sometimes just a simple no is the best answer. You may encounter an individual who they just want to scoff at everything. You may encounter an individual that they seem like they actually want to engage and talk to you about the things of God or Christianity But actually what they're trying to do is they're trying to make you think the way they want you to think. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was trying to force feed these men, right? And the simple answer became no. No. So there's times in our lives where we just need to stop the explaining and just say no. I mean... Now, the culture thinks that phrase only works for drugs and alcohol or whatever. But that, no. We're talking about saying no to worshiping idols. We're saying no to worshiping any other God but the one true God. Secondly, sometimes our faith does not deliver us in humanistic terms. Sometimes our faith does not deliver us in humanistic terms. I think we have to understand the picture here. The three men were not saved from the furnace, but they were saved in the furnace. Christianity doesn't promise you that you'll never have a trial or a trouble or a difficulty. 
What Christianity promises, what God promises through his word, is that he will see his people through the trials. He'll see his people through the troubles. God is not even promising in his word that on this earth right now, every Christian not only will have everything they want, but he's not even promising that we'll be perfect on this earth. He's promised that he will see us through every trial and he's promised that he's given us everything we need to fight against sin and hate it, awaiting the second coming. That fighting against sin engages us on this earth. It doesn't make us so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. It engages us on this earth to say to those around us, our God is true and right and we desire to fight against these sins. We desire to fight against the things of the devil on this earth. We desire to hate our own remaining flesh. Amen, sister. I mean, we've read Psalm 47, right? And it said, shout. She's shouting. Moreover, think about this for a minute. These three men said no matter what happened, they know that whatever their God did is right. They were not sure that God, as I said last week, would save them from the fire, but they were sure that whatever he did was right and that ultimately it was good and he would take care of them. They expected probably to die in the flames. And probably when they came out of the fire, they were probably some of the most surprised to find themselves alive. The humanistic terms would say it very plainly. Well, if he's really your God, he'll save you from that furnace. Maybe not. He may save you in the furnace. He may even use the furnace and the experience of the furnace to grow your faith and your trust in him. We have to say... This was an unusual occurrence because there's been thousands that have recorded that have maintained a faithful confession, as one pastor put it, and yet died in the flames. If you've read Fox's Book of Martyrs, or maybe a little book by, published by Banner of Truth called Fair Sunshine that talks about people who stood for the faith of Christ all the way to being burned at the stake or drowned for their belief. What would we say? Did God not save them? No, we would say he saved them a different way.
These men did not enter the furnace without being forced in, and they did not exit until being called out. We have to note that God's ways are not always our ways. And humans will look at God's ways and say, well, that's not the best. And God says, you don't even know what good is, much less the best. Think of the jeering at even our Lord Jesus. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe in Him. Say, The world, in its humanistic terms, they were trying to decide how salvation would come about. They were trying to dictate in that moment, we'll believe in Him if He does this. And God said, no, there's no salvation except through Him, His way, my way alone. And that's it. He came, He lived a perfect life, and He died a sinner's death. And if you won't believe in His work on the cross, then you will not believe. And we have to be reminded, thirdly, Sometimes God's judgment is swift, and other times it is delayed. Sometimes God's judgment is swift, and other times it is delayed. The men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they carried them up to that furnace, they were consumed immediately. That was a swift judgment. What if those men had said no? But they did not. And God brought swift judgment. But sometimes it's delayed. Nebuchadnezzar was given another day to live. Sometimes it's delayed. There's lots of things that happen in our world, whether it's near to me, in my personal circle, or whether it's farther from me, it may affect me on a greater scale, state, nation, globe. But God's judgment of those things is not always swift. Sometimes it's delayed. Fourthly and lastly this morning, sometimes God's care for His people looks strange. Sometimes God's care for His people looks strange. It's a reminder that when God's people are called upon to pass through the deep waters, as one writer says, God Himself has promised to be with them. Isaiah 43, 1-3, Fear not! For I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. Neither shall the flame burn you up. 
Sometimes God's care for his people looks strange. To say that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not only witnessed the power of God to save them, but it was done after they were thrown in the fire? That looks strange, sometimes even to us. Why didn't he just do something different? Like make the whole fire thing just... And it blew up and blew itself out. And everybody around was put on the ground and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were still standing. He put them into the fire to show that there is no circumstance in which God is not working. Even the strangeness of the coming of our Lord, Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God being born the Virgin Mary, that's strange, isn't it? And yet he came. However, as one writer put it, when Christ passed through the waters and walked through the fire, no one was with him. On the cross, he took the fiery path of our compromise and our idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar is not the only one who condemns to the fire those who won't bow the knee to him. Christ's perfect faithfulness is credited to my account. Wow. And it came through a strange means, a strange way, that to the world, to this very day, is still the stench of death. But to those of us who are believing, it is a sweet aroma. Let us be be thankful that even though God's ways are strange to us, he never leaves or forsakes us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to give us a time to hear your word read and preached. We ask that your spirit work according to your will in our lives. And especially as we go to this time of the table, that we would come before you in right confession of our sin, believing in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, May we have no other, no other God but you. And may we show it in our confession and repentance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.